this last Thursday morning. What a beautiful day. I mean, it was so cool. In the 50s in Oklahoma in August, what an amazing day. It was calm. I got up in the morning and I I looked outside. It was so pretty. I I said to my wife, Marcia, I'm going to walk to work. We live here in Heritage Hills. It isn't that far away. It was a little after 6.30 in the morning. And so there was just a couple of other joggers out, a, a couple of walkers out. But I mainly was by myself as I started walking up and down the streets. It was so beautiful. Everything was so green. And I found myself just starting to sing. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. I only sang out loud because there was no one else around. (laughs) But it was great. And yes, I was working on this sermon for Oklahoma. It was on my mind. Because this morning, we're going to bring to a conclusion this summer sermon series, St. Luke's on Broadway, by looking at the show Oklahoma. It hit Broadway on March the 31st, 1943. Rogers and Hammerstein had done something totally different. It was a whole new type of play. When it opened on Broadway on March the 31st, it was not to a packed house. As a matter of fact, it would take several shows for word to continue to build and the reviews, and finally they would be playing to packed houses. In fact, it would have a run for five years, 2,214 shows. It would become the longest-running musical in Broadway history at that time. It would be 15 years before that record would be broken by another musical, Fiddler on the Roof. We looked at that in our second week. No, it was incredibly popular. The fascinating thing was that Rodgers and Hammerstein did not win a Tony for this show. And that's because the Tonys did not exist at this time when it came out. (laughs) No, what they did actually get was people recognized how significant this was, and so they received a special Pulitzer Prize for the show. It was very, very popular here in the United States, also West End in London. It ran for years. It began to tour. It ran in Australia, in Japan. No, it continued to have revival after revival after revival. So much so that here just a couple of weeks ago when Marsh and I were in London, we were looking at the paper and trying to decide what shows do we want to go see while we're here. And wouldn't you know that on a six-month tour through the U.K., Oklahoma. 72 years later, after it opened on Broadway, it was still touring the UK. It gets performed all the time around the world. You'll remember that it was based actually on a story called Green Grow the Lilacs. It was a story that was written by Lynn Riggs from Claremore, Oklahoma. He had written the story Green Grow the Lilacs with all the characters we know there in Oklahoma. It's a a little bit of a different show, but he managed to get it to go to Broadway, and it had 64 performances. Only 64. It was not a financial commercial success. It lay dormant for about 10 years until finally a theater guild decided they wanted to try to bring the story back as a musical and went to Rodgers and Hammerstein to say, would you do this? And so it was, they worked hard. They chose to do things 
different. I told you that the very last musical that Rodgers and Hammerstein would do would be The Sound of Music, which was the first show that we looked at in this series. The last song that Oscar Hammerstein would write would be Edelweiss. He would die of cancer not long after that. But the first show that they produced together was Oklahoma. And it literally changed musicals on Broadway in the way you and I see musicals to this day. Several things that they did when they decided to produce this. First of all, they, they made the decision that the music was actually going to tell the story. The music would be a part of the plot line. Whereas in the past, you would have a musical and you'd have the story and then they'd throw in a musical number just to entertain you that had no meaning with the show at all. They said, no, no, the songs are going to help tell the story. It was a whole different kind of an idea. There's always been lots of jokes, bad jokes, kind of vaudeville jokes in musicals to that day. And they said, no, no, we're not going to tell just crazy jokes. There can be humor, but we're not going to tell just jokes. And musicals never had real drama. In fact, nobody had ever died in a Broadway musical until Oklahoma. As you know, Judd will die in the end after a fight with Curly. Well, that had never happened before. This was a different idea. Secondly, the idea they had was, we're not going to go with big name performers for the sake of trying to attract people. We're going to go out and find people who know how to sing and know how to act. And we will choose them because they fit the part that we're trying to cast. Some of the original people that had been talked about for Oklahoma were Shirley Temple and Groucho Marx. But Rodgers and Hammerstein said, no, no, we want to do this differently. Let's find people that, that fit the role. And so they wound up with people like Joan Roberts. Joan Roberts had been in one Broadway musical, Small Piece. But Oscar had heard her sing and asked her to come and audition. When she came to audition, she received the script. And as she looked at it, there was all kinds of vulgar, foul language from the script in Green Grow the Lilacs um, by Lynn Riggs. And she thought to herself, there is no 18-year-old farm girl in 1900 who would use that language. So she auditioned for the part and left out all the vulgar language, knowing that they weren't going to pick her if that's what she was going to do. But Oscar looked at it and thought, she's exactly right. There isn't an 18-year-old farm girl who would do that. And so he did choose her, and she got the part, and the language was not added back in in Oklahoma. When you go see the show, that's not there. No, it helped give people great starts. There, because they chose these unknown people to perform, and the show is so successful, that's been true down through the decades. As revival after revival has come, People get chosen because they are the right people for the part, not because of their name. As late as 1998, with another revival of Oklahoma, they chose a new Curly, and the guy's name was Hugh Jackman. He's gone on to do pretty well after that part. He was an unknown. No, that's what they started to do, and so it set a whole different kind of feel for the show. They went out and chose Agnes de, uh, DeMille to do the um, 
choreography. Agnes had never done choreography for a Broadway show. Again, she was an unknown, but they said, we want that. We want some kind of different dancing on Broadway, not the, um, the high can-can. We want something different. And so it was, there was a scene, you may remember, the dream ballet by Laurie at the end of the first scene, first act, and she's struggling with her feelings and insecurities, and what does she do? And Oscar had worked on it, and then Agnes came along, and she looked at it and said, that's horrible. You do not know the insecurities, the anxieties of an 18-year-old girl. What she's feeling in terms of her love life with these boys. And so she wanted to redo it and Oscar said okay. And so she created this dream ballet that became so iconic as a part of Oklahoma on Broadway. It was dancing as a part of a show in a whole new way. Because they were doing these new things, they were finding it hard for funding. It was 1941, two, as they're getting ready for 43. World War II is going on. They're having a hard time with funding, and so they got a friend who, who lived in New York, who had a friend of the patron of the arts, and they had a big dinner and invited all these wealthy people to come and invest in the show. And Oscar and, and Hammerstein, they, they played the songs, and, and, and they sang together, telling the story. And at the end of the night, zero money was raised. Zero. They went to the actors and invited them, if you want to make $500 investments in the show, which was still a, a good number in those days, a five, you know, we'll let you invest for $500. Very few did. Which was really sad. Because the show was a cash cow. From 1943 to 1948, five years, at the end of that five years, it made a return on your money of 2,500%. That means if you put up $1,000, you got back 2.5 million. That's a good investment. <laughs> That's the kind you and I are looking for. So many missed it. What a successful show. They finally had it up and going. They decided to go to New Haven and... and Try it out there. They finally raised enough funds. They had the cast. They were rehearsed. They went to New Haven. And again, because the show was so different, one of the critics said, no legs, no jokes, no chance. That's what many people felt. They didn't receive a lot of great reviews, so then they took it to Boston to have a second pre-opening before going to New York. And when they went to Boston, they made some major changes. First of all, the name of the show was Away We Go. As late as going to Boston, the name of this show to open on Broadway was Away We Go. The end of the show was Green Grow the Lilacs. Turns out that Curly and Judd fight, and you know Judd dies falling on his knife, and so now there's going to be a trial for Curly, and they take him away, and Laurie is left behind, and here they're in love and married, and you don't know what's going to happen and that's how the show ends. Aunt Eller sings to Laurie a song, You'll Never Walk Alone. Well, you and I know that they made the decision to pull that song. They pulled that song, You'll Never Walk Alone, from Away We Go and kept that song for Carousel that would soon come out. And instead, they wrote a new song, Oklahoma. 
And the ending would be Aunt Eller would call a trial real quickly and everybody would come together and say, Curly's innocent and they got married and they're off on their honeymoon and live happily ever after. It's really the ending we all wanted to know what happened and them to be happy. And so you have the whole cast come together and stand and sing Oklahoma instead of you'll never walk alone. And so when that happened, when they decided to do that, they decided at that point in Boston, right before going to New York, change the name of the show to Oklahoma. And so the show gets changed, they start printing things, and then they make one last change. They decide it needs to be called Oklahoma! Exclamation point. They went with the exclamation point because there had been this other little show come out called The Grapes of Wrath. And people had become familiar with Oklahoma and the Dust Bowl and the struggles and the Okies and they didn't want that to be what people thought about so they changed it to Oklahoma! Exclamation point. So they had to print 30,000 exclamation points to put on all the material they'd already produced and they had to start changing all the billboards and playbills and everything else. Oklahoma! Exclamation point. As I started doing all the study on this show, what I came to realize was that this show really is not about Oklahoma becoming a state. It's not about our history of becoming a state. It's not about Indian Territory and the white man's and Native Americans' struggles. Now, what this story is about is about pioneers on the frontier, people living in a very harsh condition. And what does it mean to be out on the frontier, to be poor, to be in a difficult situation, and how we need each other, how we're going to struggle together to find a way to make it. We talked about this last year on our 125th anniversary of St. Luke's, how on the first Sunday after the land run, the people came together and staked a white flag and sang, What a friend we have in Jesus. The people came to have their faith in each other. And now in a difficult world, how are we going to make it in no joy? When I started studying this show this past summer, months ago now, I started thinking about Paul writing to the Corinthians. Because you see, the Corinthians, Corinth, was a very harsh circumstance. It was a hard world. In Corinth you had all kinds of, the, of a secular world, the pagans, you had the Romans, the Greeks, the Roman gods, the Greek gods. You had the, the authorities in the Jewish synagogue who were mad at those who were going to this new little Christian church. The church was being persecuted by the Jewish hierarchy, by the Romans, by the pagans. There were so many temptations pulling at them and yet this body of Christ came together of people who were so different. Paul would say there's Greeks and Jews and slaves and free and male and female and rich and poor. We are all one in the body of Christ. We are different and we're trying to make it in a hard world. We need each other. How can the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? How can the head say to the foot, I have no need of you? It takes all of us to make the body of Christ and we need each other if we're going to make it. 
And that's what we were learning on the frontier. The cowman and the farmer were going to need each other. You know, I think it really did have an impact on who we are as a state. Oklahoma's an amazing place. The spirit here in Oklahoma really is different. I remember the bombing 20 years ago. When the bombing happened 20 years ago, we received reporters from around the world descending on Oklahoma. Because we were a Red Cross shelter, we had so many who came here, and I was interviewed countless times. And the one thing I heard over and over again from different reporters around the world was, there's something different here. What is it about you people? It's different. Why are we different? I believe it's because we started on the land. We were not a seaport with commerce coming and going. We were not some great financial center of Wall Street. We weren't the great fashion centers. No, there wasn't lots of wealth. There's cowmen and farmers on the land. And you had to count on the sun and the rain, things you don't control. And when you receive the things you need, you're grateful. You tend to be aware of the beauty around you. You tend to live differently. And you discover out here, you know, I don't like those people putting up fences. And I'm not sure I like those farmers and those cowmen. Somehow we had to learn to work together in order to make it. Just like the people in Corinth had to learn how we're going to make it together, Jews and Greeks and slave and free and rich and poor. We need each other to be the body of Christ. You know, in a world like today, when you and I travel is so free and, and it's so easy for people to come and go and, and communications are globally, I hope that we in Oklahoma do not lose that, that fundamental value, that uniqueness that makes us who we are. Different. And I, I hope that we as the family of faith don't forget those values that make us who we are. Different. Because we're a part of the body of Christ. There's really just two things that I want us to see this morning. First of all, I believe it is so important for us to live from a spirit of gratitude. In the early church, they were grateful. Grateful for what God had done in Christ. They were grateful for living in a pagan world where things were crazy and there's a different set of values. How are you supposed to live? How are you supposed to treat each other? They were grateful for a message about forgiveness of sin and acceptance. No, there was a whole different message in it. They were grateful for that. The early church lived out of gratitude. When you look at the song in the show, oh, what a beautiful morning. I mean, I couldn't help but walk to church feeling grateful. It's what the song is supposed to evoke from all of us as we take the time to look at the world and those around us to take time to be grateful. You know, it's, it's why we encourage you, have a daily devotional. Go online with the church, whatever. Make sure you come to worship where you, you take time to remember to be grateful. This past week, we had a, some people come from a church over in Lake Junaluska, North Carolina. It was Long's Chapel. No relation. Long's Chapel's a great church over in North Carolina, about 1,000 average attendance. 
but they'd heard about us having a year of gratitude here three years ago, and they wanted to learn what we did. And so they brought five of their staff over here, and, and we got our staff together and started talking about the year of gratitude and what we had done. And as I started telling them all the things we had done, it put me to thinking. You know, I was really disciplined in 2012 about writing a thank you note almost every day. I kept a journal, and almost every night I'd sit down and write three things, four things, five things I was grateful for. I continued on for a while. And I have periods where I still do that well, but now I have periods where I forget to do it. How about you? When was the last time you came to the end of the day and you sat down and you made a list of those things that you're grateful for? When was the last time you wrote a note saying thank you? It's so easy to get out of the habit and forget to live out of gratitude. As we told them what we'd done, it reminded me, you're slipping, don't do that. Two Sundays ago when we were in London, we were worshiping on that Sunday, August the 9th at, Long's cha- at uh, Wesley's Chapel. We went that afternoon just to see where his grave was, where he died. We saw his house. Because we are far enough ahead of time, we'd gotten through church and we were wandering around Wesley's place when I looked down and saw a note come across my phone that said, Frank Gifford dies, 84 years old. I, it really took me back. Frank had died. If you love football, if you've watched Monday night football for years, you, you knew Frank Gifford. It was about 28 years ago, Marsh and I had a chance to get to know Frank and Kathy Lee. It was 28 years ago, the dollar was strong against all foreign currency. You may remember those good old days. It was wonderful. I mean, it was cheaper to travel to Europe than it was to travel to the Rockies. We looked at ski packages and we could go skiing in Austria cheaper than we could go skiing in the Rockies. And so it was that Marsh and I decided to do something for the first time. We saved our money and we booked a trip to go to Kitzbühel, Austria, just the two of us, to fly to Austria and go ski the Alps, cheaper than going to the Rockies. We stayed in the Golden or Greif Hotel. It was a 500-year-old hotel. We got through skiing one day and came down to the fireplace for a little apres ski and have a little hors d'oeuvres. And when I sat down, I looked over and there was Frank Gifford and Kathy Lee sitting at the bar. And so I went over just to introduce myself and started talking, and Kathy Lee said, so where's your wife? And I said, she's right there, and said, come join us. She really is that way. And so we both climbed up on a bar stool and sat down, and for the next two hours, Frank and I talked about sports, and Marsha and Kathy Lee talked about families. We had two small children, and they were trying to start their family about that time, and they really were very, very nice people. It took me back when I heard that Frank had died. It turned out on that Sunday morning they were getting ready to go to church. He had been to the doctor three days earlier, gotten a clean bill of health, said, you're looking better than you've looked in a long time. Three days later, he dropped dead. This past week, Kathy Lee came back on the show to talk about Frank and thank everybody for their support. But she said some things I thought were fascinating. She said, you know, growing up, everybody knows about the public life of Frank. He's a football player, Hall of Fame, Pro Bowl. He's a commentator. A lot of people don't know he helped the Shrivers and Kennedys start Special Olympics. They don't all know that he grew up in Texas and that his family was so poor during the Depression, they moved 29 times before he graduated high school looking for work. 29 times. They were so poor 
there were times I had to eat dog food. When he graduated and got a scholarship to go to USC, he had one pair of jeans and one white shirt. She said he was so poor and struggled so much. I think it's one of the things that caused him later in life to be the most grateful man I've ever known. He was so full of gratitude. And the other thing was his faith. His family grew up going to church and said that through the years in his life, he's done well and he has strayed, he's made his mistakes. But he always came back to his faith. And I got to tell you, here in the last part of his life, he was so much at peace. And as his faith grew stronger, so did his gratitude. He was the most grateful man I've ever known. And I thought, to know peace, to know joy, it is to be grateful to God, to live in that spirit of gratitude, and to have a gratitude for those who are around you. It is easy to forget. But secondly, I think it's important to remember the value that we need each other. Paul was trying to tell the Corinthian church, you know, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. We need each other. Greek and Jew, the Gentiles, slave, free, male, female, rich, poor. It takes all of us to be the body of Christ. If we're going to make it in this harsh environment, it's going to take all of us. It was very clear of Paul's message to the early church. It is so easy to think I can do it on my own. It's easy to suddenly want everybody to be just like me. We need people who are different. It was the subject in the show of Oklahoma. You have the cowman and the farmer. You got the people who are different from each other. How are we going to learn to make it here on the frontier? If we're going to make it in this world, we're going to have to make it with each other. And it's the message for us that it takes all of us, those who are red and brown and black and white, all of us who are different, if we're going to make it, we need each other. It was interesting that Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein needed each other. They both had had careers before this and had done fairly well, but then their partners did not want to write for Oklahoma. It kind of forced them to come together. They both had this dream. The fascinating thing was when they came together, things had always been done differently. It turned out that when Rogers was working with Lorenzo Hart, Lorenzo always wanted him to write the music and then Lorenzo would write the words. But Rogers really would rather have tried that differently, but that's the way it was always done. But when he and Oscar got together, they said, let's do it different. And so Oscar wanted to write the words that actually told the story, and it took him three weeks to write the words for Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. And when he gave it to Richard Rogers, he took it and looked at it and said it came so naturally, he wrote the music in ten minutes. Ten minutes. One of the great hits that they would produce. And that's what they started doing. Together, they would win 35 Tonys. 35 Tonys. 15 Academy Awards, two Pulitzer Prizes, two Grammys, two Emmys, the only writing group to win an award in all five major categories. They are amazing. 
Independently, they were good. Together, they were great. They needed each other. And we need each other to do things that are great and matter. And that is actually how Oklahoma became our state song. There's a wonderful story by George Nye who tells about wanting Oklahoma to be our state song. It turned out, you know, we had another state song, and I, I don't know if you've ever heard it before. It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, it's horrible. You, you think, how did we come up with that thing? But that was our state song. And it was in 1943, George tells how he was a sophomore in high school, and he was listening to the Lucky Strike Top Ten Hit Parade for America. And that night, the number one hit in America, Oklahoma. He loved it. He thought, that's my state, and here's the number one song in America. By 1953, he was actually in the legislature, and he thought, this is a slam dunk. I can take care of this. I'll get that to be our state song. And so he introduced a bill to make it the state song, thought, I can do this, no, no problem. And when it was introduced on the floor, suddenly he said it was Old Man Huff from Ada who hit the floor screaming, what are you doing? We have a state song. It's a great state song. It's our history. It's written by our people. And you want a state song that's been written by two New York Jews? That was his argument. He said, this is a great state song. And he got up and started singing the song and walking up and down the aisles of where all the uh, the legislators were sitting and he'd walk by and get one and get them to kind of stand up and, and then get another one to make them stand up and he kept singing the state song and soon tears were running down his cheek and he was weeping and he finally had all the legislators standing up as he wept singing our old state song and George said I could tell this was going south <laughs> if we took a vote I was going to lose and so he said, uh, uh, Mr. Speaker, I'd like to move that we put this on the table for 24 hours. They all voted and they agreed. So it was put on the table for 24 hours. George went back to his office and immediately called his friend out in Chickasha to the Oklahoma College for Girls and said, do you have a choir that can sing Oklahoma? He said, yes. He said, have them here tomorrow morning. He called his friend, Ridge Bond. Ridge Bond is the only native Oklahoman to ever play Curly on Broadway. And it just so happened that George and Ridge um, were roommates years ago in school. They were friends back in high school. And so he called up Ridge and he said, Ridge, do you still have that costume you used on Broadway? Yes, I need you here tomorrow morning in that costume. He then called Jenkins Music. And he called Jenkins Music and said, do you have any legislation down here at the Capitol that's important to you? Yes, yes we do. He said, fine, I want a piano here tomorrow morning. <laughs> then call me. <laughs> sure enough, there was a piano the next morning. He got on the floor and said, could we have a, uh, a permission for our special guest to come in to, to be on the floor? Permission granted. And the girls' choir came out and they began to sing, Surrey with the fringe on top. Oh, what a beautiful morning. People will say we're in love. And when they were through, then they began to play the piano and it began to rumble louder and louder. And then Ridge kicked in the back door of the chamber and stepped out singing Oklahoma. 
And he started to walk up and down the aisles as he's singing Oklahoma. And they all stood up and they all started clapping as he's singing. There was 300 people in the gallery. They all came to their feet and they were all clapping. And when the song was over, he said, now I'd like to take a vote. (laughs) And that's how you got your state song. Our state song is the only state in America to have a Broadway musical tune as our state song. But even George Nye, as good as he is, couldn't do it on his own. He needed help. We all need help. We need each other. There is Greek and Jew and slave and free and rich and poor It takes us all to be the body of Christ. We need each other. And if we live out of a spirit of gratitude to God, if we live out of that spirit of gratitude, then it's easier to show mercy, to accept, to work with each other, to make it go in the most harsh and difficult circumstances. When we work with each other out of a spirit of gratitude, you can know joy, even in those hard times. Those are the values on which the early church, a family of faith, was built. And those are the values that I believe make our state great. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.